Jones. La, da, 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 da. Good morning, Woodland Hills. So good to see you. Happy Fourth of July weekend. Woo! This weekend stands for freedom. And it. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the freedom that uh, America stands for is the freedom to pursue life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, which is great. I would not want to live anywhere else. But there's always a but on the 4th of July. It's just really important, really, really, really important to always remember that that's not the kind of freedom we rally around. That's not the freedom of the gospel. That's not the freedom of the Son of God. In fact, the freedom of the kingdom is not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's the freedom to not have to cling to your life, to not have to insist on your liberty, and to not have to pursue happiness. It's the freedom to die to yourself, to be a slave of Jesus Christ, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen? That's the freedom of the kingdom. And actually, the truth be told, if you're not careful, you see, compared to the freedom of the kingdom, the freedom, the political freedom of a country can be a form of bondage, precisely because you're trying to grasp for it all. All right, that's not my sermon, I'm just saying. Hey, my name's Greg. Uh, I'm just just saying. Good good, teaching moment. Uh, My name's Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor at Woodland Hills Church. Really good to see all of you here this uh, July 4th Sunday. We are... Today, going to bring an end to this series. We really are. I'm not kidding this time. For sure, for sure, we're going to bring an end to this series on uh, scandalous love. Uh, we did six weeks on a series of scandalous love, and then with another six weeks here, just sort of, in fact, we thought about titling it Can't Stop the Love because we just couldn't bring an end to it. But we uh, are going to kind of wrap it up here this morning. And that the message isn't specifically on scandalous love, but it's rather on the issue that's been raised so many times by so many people throughout the series of, of why, why haven't they heard this before? Why is this beautiful portrait of God rarely put out there in all of its beauty? Uh, and I want to just kind of address that question. I want to read from the book of John, chapter 5, verses 39 through 42 and 46 and 47. Here Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he says to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them... You possess eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Notice there that life isn't found in the verses, it's found in the person that the verses refer to. Life is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus says at one point, you do not have the love of God in your hearts. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, but for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Let's pray here for a moment. Father, for every person in this auditorium listening through podcast, television, or some other way, we just pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and hearts and ears and minds, lives to receive your word deeply, be confronted by your word. Wake us up, Lord. Wake us up to maybe things that seem obviously true to us, but in fact, are just strongholds that we need to be free from. Use your message to do what human words can never do, and that is to set us increasingly free to walk in your kingdom, love, life, and beauty. Reflect the beauty that you are. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. 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 
The Pharisees, as I pointed out a number of times in this last series, they were the Bible-believing Christians of the first century. Uh, They were the fundamentalists of the first century. They knew their Bible. They studied their Bible. They had parts of it, many of them, almost all of it, memorized. They could quote a a verse for every occasion. They, They really knew their Bible, took it very, very serious. And yet Jesus says you don't really believe the Bible, at least you really don't believe in Moses, because if you believed Moses, you'd, be, you'd believe in me, and that's not happening. Which shows you that you can know your Bible, but not really know your Bible. You can have all the verses down, you can have all the knowledge about the original language and a whole bunch of other stuff, and yet you really don't believe, really don't know your Bible. The Pharisees had all the puzzles, but they couldn't, all the pieces of the puzzle, but they couldn't put, the, put it together to see the big picture. They couldn't see the forest through the trees. They couldn't see the deeper meaning, the deeper meaning of Scripture. They had the letter of it, but they didn't have the spirit of it, because if they had, they would have seen that the whole thing points towards Jesus Christ. And the reason, the reason they couldn't see the forest through the trees, despite all of their Bible knowledge, the reason why they systematically misinterpreted it, was because they didn't have the love of God in their heart. When you read the Bible with a heart that is set on some other agenda other than the love of God, you're going to read it through those lens. And you're going to misinterpret it and miss the forest through the trees. The general principle that I want to speak on here this morning is this, that what we find in the Bible will say as much about us as it does about what's actually in the Bible. It says something about the kind of heart that we bring to the Bible. And so I want to entitle this message, The Rorschach Test. The Rorschach Test. As many of you know, probably from your own personal counseling, uh, a Rorschach Test is designed by this guy named Rorschach. And um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just a way of teasing out what's going on in your subconscious. So here's a Rorschach Test. Look at this picture. What do you see in this picture? You see, and, and, and see, what they'll find is that as you look at that picture and just kind of like stream of consciousness, tell us what, what's on your mind. If you have a fearful heart, you'll see something threatening here, maybe a monster uh, or an alien with claws or something. If, if you're struggling with sexual issues, maybe you'll see something really jaded sexually in, the, in that picture. If you're a narcissist, you'll see a person maybe worshiping you or something. If you're a sadist, you'll see someone getting tortured. Uh, in other words, we, we, we project onto an ambiguous, undefined, amorphic uh, picture We project onto it a clarity that's not there. And the clarity that we impose on the picture says a whole lot about what's going on in our subconscious. It says a whole lot about us. All of life is a bit like that. The Bible certainly is like that. The way we interpret the Bible, the way we interpret life, the way we interpret other people, the way we interpret God, the way we interpret experiences, well, says a whole lot about us. What kind of lens we're wearing. What's going on in our life. I want, to be, I want to be careful here because there's a lot of things that affect the way we look at the world, the way we look at God, the way we interpret the Bible. I don't want to be formulaic. I always want to uh, avoid that. We, we, we're influenced by uh, our cultural conditioning, our personalities, and all sorts of other things. But what Jesus is getting at in this passage is that the condition of our heart, how centered we are on love, self-sacrificial Christ-like love, that will to a large degree determine what we find in the Bible will determine a whole lot about how we see life. And I, I, I bring it up now because, as I mentioned earlier, throughout this series, throughout this series, we've had people asking the question, why haven't I been taught this before? One lady came up after the lost coin sermon, and she was just kind of beside herself. The, the coin dropped in the slot. She was just really getting the love of God and, 
and it was just changing the way she viewed God and herself and the way she read the Bible. You know, and, and now it was becoming kind of obvious to her. Like she read the verse about the consuming fire, and that used to be such a scary verse. But now, as you reframe it in the light of the love of God revealed on Calvary, because part of the good news, it burns away the chaff that keeps us from experiencing the love of God. And so she was seeing all this, and it was kind of obvious to her. And the question is, how did I miss it before? How was I so blind? But not only that, but how, how come in my past church experience I wasn't given this? Uh, why is it throughout much of church history? You just don't find people advocating uh, the, the love of God the way we've been looking at it the last, the last 12 weeks. In fact, it's, it's, it's crazy, but you can look at all the ecumenical creeds throughout church history. And you'll find a lot about the Trinity and a lot about salvation and, and a lot about judgment. But you don't find anything about the love of God. How is that when it's so central? So the center of the, of the Christian faith is the proclamation that God became a human being and died on the cross for the very people who were crucifying him. Out of that outlandish love. And yet, the love of God doesn't even creep out in most of our creeds. Why is that? Something's off here. Now the ultimate answer is going to be that Satan blinds us. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 4.4. There's a principality of power out there who is systematically trying to blind us to keep us from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's the most fundamental answer. But the penultimate answer, the, the question we got to ask is this. What makes us vulnerable to that? How do we so often miss this? And to understand that, we've got to understand something about how the human brain works. So we're going to do a little bit of psychology here. Oh, goody. Now, here's an experiment I want us to watch. Uh, see if you can count how many times the people in uh, the, the white shirts pass the basketball. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? No! The moonwalking bear. Some of you maybe didn't see it the second time. I mean, <laughs> now we all saw the bear on, on a physical level. We all saw the bear. Your eyes saw that whole picture, and yet you didn't see the moonwalking bear. The reason is because your brain filtered that out. You're given an assignment to count the number of times that the people in the white shirts passed the basketball. So you're attending to that, and whatever was not helpful to counting the number of passes got deleted from our brains. That's the way our brains work. Here's how it goes down. We're impacted by about 100 million bits of information per second that's coming at us from our uh, environment. The brain instantly deletes about 98% of that. It just sort of monitors that, but it filters it out as irrelevant. The remaining two million bits of information, it sort of combs through and then will present to our consciousness the seven bits of information per second, give or take two bits of information per second. Uh, it, it will present to us what it deems most important. So 
I gave the assignment, count the number of times the ball is passed. So that became important. So your brain used all of its attention on that and deleted the moonwalking bear. That's how it is with everything. Right now, hopefully, most of you are conscious that there's a person up front talking to you. You're conscious of my voice. You're, you're, you're attending to that. But probably you weren't aware of the weight of your body against the chair that you're sitting on. Now you are. Because that became important because I just talked about it. And you had to let go of some other little piece of information in order to use your consciousness to pay attention to the weight of your body against uh, the, the, the chair that you're sitting on. Our brain is a magnificent filtering device, which allows us to be conscious of a few things by filtering out most things. This explains why certain people who tend to have their heads in the clouds, these kind of eggheads who are thinking about ideas a lot, why they come across as such idiots. And the truth be told is we are idiots, but, but the, this explains why. If you're, if, you're, if you're living in the conscious room of of, of uh, trying to work out theological problems and reconcile different biblical verses and, 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 and your ten, brain tends to use up all of its attention span on, on uh, you know, trying to figure out the logical implications of whiteheading and concretions of actual occasions and the preemptions of God's as it transforms preemptions into objectified datum. If that's where you live, I'm just saying, I'm just saying you're not going to have a whole lot of room left over for awareness of your physical environment, which is, explains why you know, you forget keys, where you put your keys all the time, and, and, and where, some of this happens to somebody else, doesn't it, where you, you're driving, and all of a sudden, you, you like, wake up and wonder, where am I, and where am I supposed to be going? Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> Downtown St. Paul, like, okay, and there's kind of a panic, like, where am I going? I'm supposed to be somewhere. What am I doing here? You know, because you're thinking about white-heading concrescence or something, you know, it's philosophical stuff. Shelley used to pay these very, 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 very cruel tricks on me. It uh, doesn't do it much anymore. Like early on, it wasn't a trick. She, I'd come home and, and she'd want to like, you know, surprise me. She goes, well, you know, what's new in the room? What's new? I hate that game. She loves that game. <laughs> I do a lot of therapy over this one. What's new in the room? So I'm like, you know, scanning the room. You know, this is dangerous. <laughs> I must get, find out what's new. And, and then, you know, I'll take out the thing that looks kind of new and I'll say, oh, the, the vase. The, what a nice vase. Did you buy the vase today? Turns out I gave her the vase last year for her birthday. <laughs> ah, the game is just... One time she and her friend Marsha played a trick on me where we, we had a light fixture that didn't work in our old house. And, and so they went out and they bought a chandelier and it hung too low. Uh, and in this room there wasn't any table or anything, just a chandelier. And they wanted to know how long it would take before I'd notice that we had a, a chandelier in this otherwise vacant dining room. It took me running into the thing three times over a course of three days before I finally complained that someone had lowered our chandelier. <laughs> Who lowered that thing? It was a brand new chandelier. I didn't notice that we got, we got that. But see, the brain's magnificent and filtering. Honey, I'm just filtering. That's all. I'm filtering. I'm living in the room of, of, of philosophical ideas. Who's got time to be, pay attention to your environment? But see, so what we pay attention to, what we notice, what becomes... You know, what gets our attention and keeps our attention reflects our value system and well, a lot of other things. Our conditioning and, and personalities and whatever. But we filter out whatever's not important. What we notice it says a lot about us. When I was in grad school, I used to take any job I could just to put some you know, food on the table. And I, I worked one summer uh, with these bricklayers, which is the roughest crowd I've ever had to work with. Here's a seminary guy working with these bricklayers. And they're a rough crowd. 
And, and one time we were working on the, 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 uh, the roof of this building about eight floors up. And somebody says, hey, you guys, come over here. Look at this. Go over to the edge of the building and look down. And there's a lady who apparently was lost. This rather attractive lady. And, and what, but what I noticed was that she had, it looked like uh, one son was, was African-American. And she was holding a little child that, that looked like it had Down syndromes. And I was immediately like just wondering, what's, what's the story there? What's the story there? You know, did she adopt this child? Or, you know, I'm just wondering about that. The other guys weren't wondering that so much. Uh, they were really impressed by the fact that they had an angle at her where they could, yeah, you know, these are these guys. And so they were just like hooting and hollering, doing catcalls over the fact that they could see some cleavage here. Uh, that's what stood out. That's what, they didn't even notice that she had kids. You see, but as with most things, they had one thing on their mind most of the time, and everything else got filtered as irrelevant and unimportant. The rest of the summer, they would refer to the hot mama who got lost because she was down there looking for directions. In the same crew, the boss, some of you work for bosses like this. This is another filtering mechanism. He was the boss and everyone had to know that and acknowledge it. Miserable, miserable situation, kind of person to work for. Uh, at the core of his being was this deep, deep insecurity. And therefore, he had to compensate by insisting that everybody recognize that he's the boss. Which meant, as he's looking at the world through the lens of his insecurity, even good suggestions he perceived as a threat because he didn't come up with them. What, you think you're smarter than me? And so you can have these suggestions, but you'd never do it unless you can make him think that it was his suggestion. You've worked with people like that, haven't you? Well, before I learned this, and everyone on the team went along with this because he had the power to fire you on the spot, but I, 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 we were having to haul up these 16-pound bricks on the scaffolding that we built up to about 10 stories. And that is hard. Brick upon brick, you just load up, then you got to go all these trips all day long, bringing these bricks up. Now we had a hoist that would carry the mortar, the cement, up to the top. And you just push a button and, you know, and, and there it is. And half the time it was sitting not doing anything, so I came up with an idea. Why not put the bricks on the hoist and lift them up to the top? And I just started doing that. And you could get three times as many bricks up there in the same amount of time period with hardly any of the effort, which was my real goal. Always looking for a way to get out of manual labor. And you get that up there, it's fast, it's efficient. We're freed up to do other things, like relax. And uh, I thought it was pretty brilliant. How come no one thought of this before? Well, the foreman caught us. Caught us. And I at first thought he'd be impressed that we were so, you know, have such ingenuity. He was furious. What are you doing? Putting the bricks on the, on, on the mortar hoist, the, the cement hoist, they call it. The mud mixing hoist. I go, well, you see, if you put it on there, it goes up really fast. We can get a whole lot more bricks up there, and, and we don't need to be hauling them all up there. He was just, that's not what it's for. His argument, oh, this was just a brilliant argument. His argument against me was that it's called a brick hoist, not a cement hoist. So I said, why don't we just rename it as the brick and cement hoist? I didn't think it was very funny. But see, when you're looking at the world through the lens of your insecurity, you know, that, what's important is that this might be a threat to you. This little punk here thinks he's smarter than you. That's how he heard it. Actually, I was just trying to get out of work. Nothing personal here at all. But see, we filter everything out. The, the mind is a tremendous filtering machine so that what we see is what we want to see, what we're conditioned to see, what we expect to see. What we see says a whole, a whole lot more about us than what it does about the reality that's out there. Now that puts us in a position, I think, to answer some questions about how it is in, in church history you can find people who claim to be believing in Jesus and claim to be believing in the Bible, and yet they do things that we can now look at and we say, that is horrendous, it is ungodly, it was antichrist. 
Here's a picture of a website I came across this week as I was doing research for this. The God Hates Fags website. These people, they're advocating themselves. This is a pro site. They brag about their ministry on this. And you go on this website and you'll see the most diabolical, prejudiced, hate-filled images you can imagine. Little children carrying these signs. God hates fags. Fags are going to hell. God hates you. And things like this. And they, they brag about how they go to funerals, military funerals, where parents are grieving over their deceased military people, and they disrupt the funeral with these signs. And it's not because the soldier is gay, though that would be diabolical enough, but they're doing it because this is their message now to America. The reason these soldiers got killed is because God's not protecting America, and the reason he's not protecting America is because there's gay people in America, and we're not cracking down on that. Now, that says nothing about the Bible, but it says a whole lot about the hearts of these people about their idolatry and, and, and where they get life. You wonder, how is it possible that people who claim to be following the, the Lord who tells us to, 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 to love all people, who prays for the forgiveness of all people, the Lord who, who delighted in hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors and got mad at the religious people for judging them, how is it that people who claim to follow that Lord can end up carrying signs, diabolical, despicable, hateful signs like this? The answer is that you see what you want to see, what you expect to see, what you're, what you're conditioned to see. And you filter out everything else. Incredible filtering device. Throughout the Middle Ages, they had all these torturing devices. I had heard about a lot of these devices. I hadn't seen a lot of them, pictures of them, but they're just unthinkable in terms of the diabolical, satanic ways that people invent to torture other people. And throughout the Middle Ages, we find machines like this. This is called the rack, where they would literally just rip a person in two slowly trying to elicit a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. What's wrong with this picture? And on many of these machines was inscribed, Palma existu tantum et Deus, to God be all the glory. All these screams, this torture, this mayhem, this diabolical pain was supposedly for the glory of God. And on these machines they would torture heretics and witches and political dissidents and anyone who disagreed with the church and the Jews and the Muslims during the Inquisition, to the glory of God. How is it possible that people who are claiming to follow the Lord who told us to love and bless those who persecute us have turned into the persecutors? The Lord who told us to turn the other cheek, now they're cutting off people's heads. The answer is that you see what you want to see, what you expect to see, what you're conditioned to see, and you filter out everything else. It makes us vulnerable to Satan, who then uses that to bring discredit to the church. One of the grossest examples of this occurs in Nazi Germany. Do you know that the Nazis had on their belt buckles, God mittens, God is with us, inscribed in their belt buckles. There it is right there. God is with us. Just imagine the fact that for a lot of Jewish children, the last thing they saw before they were sent into the showers and got gassed was a soldier wearing this, this, this belt buckle. Oh, God's with you? God's on your side? And the, the, the sick thing is that this wasn't some kind of satanic joke. They really believed that. At least many of them did. In fact, the bulk of the Nazi Germans were, were, were church-attending Catholics and Jews. These soldiers believed that God was with them. In fact, Hitler said this early on. The National Socialist Movement was founded as kind of a conservative Christian movement. And Hitler says, My feelings as a Christian, as a Christian point me to my Lord and Savior as a warrior. So much, so much for the Lord who died on the cross for his enemies. 
The Lord is a warrior. What's really sad is that that's not exceptional by historic standards. You find people doing this all the time. It's because I'm a Christian that I kill for my country. Because I'm a Christian that I see Jesus as this warrior. How is it possible that the one who taught us to be peacemakers and to put down the sword and to never retaliate but to love our enemies and people who claim to be following him pray prayers like this. God is a warrior. How is it possible? Well, you see what you want to see. You see what you expect to see, what you're conditioned to see, what you, maybe you've been brainwashed to see, and you filter out everything else, and the devil uses it to blind us to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And sadly, the whole idea of God as a warrior, and now we're killing for the Jesus that we're supposed to be being willing to be killed for. Not, the, 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 you find that throughout history. Maybe the darkest period in church history was in Europe during the 17th and 18th century, where we had over a century of almost nonstop warfare, Throughout all of Europe, between nations, all of them professing to be Christians. Catholic versus the Calvinists versus the Lutherans versus the Anglicans versus the Orthodox. The only group that wouldn't participate in the fun was the Anabaptists, and they almost got com completely exterminated because they wouldn't fight back. Why? Because Jesus says, don't do that. And they took it seriously. Everybody else was slaughtering everybody else, and they were doing it for God and country. And the God they were doing it for was Jesus, allegedly. Because their country, of course, is the privileged, honored country, and and it was just massive. Uh, th th this is a portrait of, of uh, the Thirty Years' War, the battle at White Mountain by Peter Snares. The Catholics fighting over the Protestants, fighting against the Protestants and vice versa in Austria. How, how is that possible? How is it possible? The Thirty Years' War alone, they said, uh, they estimate about a third of the people in modern-day Germany, it was Prussia back then, but a third of the people were slaughtered. Massive bloodshed, mayhem, children, women, forgotten country, and the God with Jesus on both sides. Christians killing Christians in the name of Christ, who forbid us to ever do killing. What's wrong with this picture? But see, we maybe shouldn't judge too harshly, because this is a, this is after all the Fourth of July, and it's a holiday that commemorates Christians slaughtering other Christians. We just celebrate that fact that we were on the winning side. Think about this. Think about this. And I'm not trying to rain anyone's party. I'll be going to fireworks tonight because I think they're cool and pretty and the kids go, wow. But, 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 but as kingdom people, we've got to wake up to something here. You know, uh, is this really a Christian holiday? <laughs> Isn't it kind of a sad Christian holiday if it is? Because here Christians are killing Christians in the name of God and country. The, the English would, would quote Romans 13 against us. You guys, Romans 13 says God is the one who orders the governments, and so we're supposed to submit to whatever government that's in power. That's the Bible. It says it right there. And they had a point. The Americans would come back not with very many Bible verses, but we would say, hey, well, what, what right does an island have to rule a continent? So we all pick up arms, and boom, we go. And most of the people on both sides were professing Christians. Like many of them belonged to the same church, the Anglican church or the Catholic church. What's wrong with this picture? It even gets a little bit worse after this as it becomes sort of uh, deified. This holiday gets deified in church history. John Quincy, uh, Quincy Adams, on a famous Fourth of July speech, says this. And you can find this in, if you want to, look for it, but I'm not encouraging you to do this, in this thing called the American Patriots Bible. This is a footnote to Colossians 2.7, which is about building our faith on Christ. What it's doing there, I don't know, but I have that question about most of the footnotes in this, uh, this Bible. Um, but it, it, it quotes this sermon, which, uh, this speech, where John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, says, Why is it, Americans, next to the birthday of the Savior of the world, your most joyous and most venerated festival returns on this day? 
Is it not that the birthday of the nation is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the Savior? And then he goes on to say that the reason is because America is the fulfillment, the beginning of the fulfillment of the mission for which the Savior came into the world, the birthday of America. So the 4th of July is the second most venerated, most holy holiday for American Christians. I would have thought Easter would have maybe nudged it out a little bit. I'm... <laughs> See, okay, we have the resurrection of Jesus versus we killed more British than they killed of us. Oh, no, no, the, 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 killing the British wins. I, uh, you, see, you see what you want to see, what you expect to see, what you're conditioned to see, and you filter out everything else. And America as the fulfillment of the mission for which Jesus came into this world. Think about this. This holiday that's predicated on Christians killing Christians fulfills the reason why Jesus came into the world when Jesus is the one who told us not to kill other Christians or even our other enemies. What's wrong with this picture? How is it possible? Well, you see what you want to see, and you filter out everything else. And that's why many today yet think this is some kind of sacred holiday without reflecting on actually what's all going into this. The Bible is a Rorschach text. test. Life is a Rorschach test. How you interpret history is a Rorschach test. It's all a Rorschach test. Because what we see says a whole lot more about what's in us than what's actually out there. And with that in place now, I think we can begin to ask, answer the question that we started with, and that is, how is it that the scandalous love of God was so frequently missed throughout church history? How is it that none of our creeds make the love of God at the, uh, put the love of God at the center or even mention it? How is that possible? Here's a little bit of history that explains it. You see, uh, the way we read the Bible changed radically in the 4th century. Up to the 4th uh, century, the first three centuries of church history, when, when early Christians thought about God, they thought about this. This is a painting that comes much later, but it reflects the picture of God. God is most definitively, most decisively, a, the God who was crucified for us and for all people. God is the humble God, the meek God, the God who would rather be slain by enemies rather than slay his enemies. That's the heart of God. That's how they thought about God. And they understood, as all of us must, that the, the most fundamental job of a Jesus disciple is to imitate that, to imitate that love to all people at all times. They understood that. They were a persecuted minority in the Roman world, and, 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 and so they just lived this countercultural, beautiful lifestyle of outrageous love. It got slaughtered all over the place, but they didn't mind because they knew that this life is just a little prelude to the real thing, and that's how the church grew. Something terrible happened in the beginning of the fourth century. In 312, the emperor Constantine allegedly got a vision, uh, and the vision told him to put uh, the first two letters of Christ on the shields of his soldiers and he'd march into battle against this other uh, rival emperor and he would get the victory. See, this is how pagans think. Throughout history, they thought, that, you know, the, the God who kills the most people is the greatest God. And so he was getting a revelation that the God of the Christians is the greatest God. How? How do you know that? Well, because he's going to help me kill people. This is how it works in paganism. And Constantine's a good pagan, so he gets this vision. He thinks it's of God. Personally, I think it was of the devil if the vision happened at all. It may just be one big legend. And he goes into battle and he wins. So the next year, he legalizes Christianity. It had been illegal to be a Christian up to that point. He legalizes it. And then he begins to throw money at the Christians. And he begins to throw power at the Christians. He begins to throw pagan temples at the Christians, saying, you get to have your own temples. That's when we started calling a building a church. When in the New Testament, the people are the church, not a building. But see, the Christianity becomes overnight paganized. In the Gospels, when, when, when Jesus is offered all the power of the kingdoms and all the glory of the kingdoms, Jesus and the gospel authors see it as a temptation of the devil because it's going to detract from our looking like Calvary. 
doing things a Calvary way. So it's a temptation of the devil. Now the same offer is on the table by the same being. But instead of seeing it as a temptation, people like Augustine and Eusebius and other church fathers say, oh, God is blessing us. Blessing us with the power of the sword. The power to run things. And why not? Because we're the superior righteous people. So Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire in 382. And in 383, we read about the first Christian mob storming a pagan temple and murdering the pagan priest. Things have radically changed. When you pick up the sword, you put down the cross. And then we find this image of Jesus. This is an icon uh, around 500 AD. Now this is what Jesus looks like. Quite a stretch from the crucified Jesus. This is Jesus, and he's wearing the emperor's garments. He's a Caesar. And now they begin to see Jesus as this cosmic Caesar. And all the stuff about imitating Jesus and living the Calvary lifestyle, that all gets explained away. It kind of gets filtered out. We thought that we'd have to imitate Jesus in his death, but it turns out, no, we can you know, we jump right to the resurrection, and now we're going to rule the world. And now Christians begin to pick up the sword, and they think it's their job to conquer in Jesus' name. It's just like pagans have been doing throughout history, only now we're doing it in Jesus' name. You see, they're, they, they're, once violence got into their heart and their lifestyle, well, it colored their perception. We, we make God after our own image, if we're not careful. We, make, we read the Bible after our own image. We read our country after our own image. We read history after our own image. So now Jesus looks a whole lot more like well, what the pagans always expected him to look like. He's the conquering militant Jesus. And so his followers start to imitate that. And then we have bloodshed throughout church history. And it goes on until this day. It explains why, despite all the stuff in the New Testament about being humble and, and living this self-sacrificial lifestyle, despite all of that... Many Christians have a militant view of God, a Caesar view of God, a sword-carrying view of God. It explains why many Christians spend much more time and are much more interested in passing laws against certain types of sinners than they are in serving other types of sinners. It's why many Christians deem other people's sins as worse than their own, even though Jesus explicitly tells us to do the opposite of that. See, we see what we want to see. We see what we expect to see, what we're conditioned to see, and we filter out everything else. That's why many Christians, for many Christians, being right is more important than being loving. That's why many, for many Christians in America, they get very antsy, maybe even aggravated, if you question the righteousness and the God-favored status of America. Some maybe who are listening to this message right now are experiencing that. Because, see, we're, we're, we're heirs to this Constantinian paradigm, this way of looking at the church and at God and at Jesus. It's why many Christians get really livid when you start to question the appropriateness of, 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 of Christians killing for God and country and the military. You see what we want to see. If we're not careful and to, to call into question maybe things that are obvious to us, well, then we're defined by our culture. It's very hard for fish to notice the water they swim in. It's hard for us to stay attentive to the air that we breathe. Unfortunately, in this fallen world, the water's polluted and the air's polluted. And if we're not consciously fighting against it, we're assimilating it, and it jaundices, it colors the way we look at the world, the way we look at God, the way we look at ourselves, the way we read the Bible. The Rorschach test gets interpreted in the light of the pollution that we're inheriting. So I close with two applications of this. First, we need to regularly ask God to open up our eyes, because only he can do it. We've said throughout this series that only God can reveal God. We need God to reveal, reveal the true God and wake us up to the ways we've been blinded, but we don't even know it. Think about this. 
You know, it's easy for us to look back at the Nazi Germans and say, how blind they were! Those evil people, how blind they were! And they were. But see, to them, to them it was obvious that God was with us. A third of the German churches signed on to the whole Nazi program. It was obvious to them that God was favoring their country, and so forgotten country, they have to go forward with the extermination program. It was obvious to them. And yet, they were completely wrong, diabolically wrong. We, in humility, have to ask the question, are the things that seem obvious to us that we're blind to? We need to ask other people in our life to help us wake up to the matrix all around us. The water we swim in, the air that we breathe. And ask the question, have we perhaps, do we perhaps filter out some of God's love because we're, we're, we've been blinded by our religious culture? Do we perhaps filter out some of God's concern for the poor because we've been blinded by this consumer culture that we live in? That's the water we swim in. That's the air that we breathe. Do we perhaps filter out the centrality of loving and blessing our enemies because we've been swimming in the water of a, of a violent culture without even noticing it? And, and it just becomes obvious that there's times when we're supposed to uh, rather kill our enemies. Have we filtered out God's call to live a chaste, a morally chaste life? Because we're swimming in immoral waters, in a culture that, so far as I can see, has next to no sexual mores whatsoever. As you breathe that air and swim in that water long enough, well, it begins to affect your attitudes, so it's not a big deal if you're going to be sleeping around and having sex outside of marriage. Have we maybe filtered out God's call to serve all people, to be servants of the world, because we're breathing the air of a self-centered culture? where it's better to be served than it is to serve? Are we filtering out maybe God's call to live in this radically different kingdom because we've been blinded by our culture of nationalism and we absorb the culture rather than resist it? Have we filtered out perhaps God's call to not judge others because we breathe maybe an evangelical culture of self-righteousness and it just seems obvious that our sins are the minor sins and their sins are the major sins Holy Spirit help us to wake up make that your prayer Holy Spirit wake us up because we don't know what we don't know we don't know what we're blinded to if we knew that we wouldn't be blinded would we no we, we don't know what we don't know and so we need God to show us ways that we have been blinded second thing is, is this that will never happen. That first point will never happen unless we do this. This is the most fundamental point. Commit to making Christ-like love the center of your life. The reason why you live, the center of everything, the most important fact in your existence. If, we're, if, if being loved by God and loving like God isn't at the center of everything, all of our Bible knowledge in the world, all of your right doctrines, all of your right political opinions, all of it is altogether worthless. The only thing that counts, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, is faith working itself out in love. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. Look, if I speak in human or angelic tongues, that's a real cool thing. But if I don't have love, I'm simply a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy, that's fantastic. And I can fathom all mysteries. Wonderful. And I have all knowledge. Very impressive. And if I have faith that can move mountains, wow, you could hold a crusade with that. But if you don't have love, I am nothing. Nada. Zippo, zero. It's worthless. And even if I give, give all I possess to the poor and even surrender my body over to hardship so that I, I can boast, but if I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is the all or nothing of the kingdom life. If you've got it, well, then everything else you need to get, you're going to eventually get. But if you don't have it, you're never going to get it by some other means. And everything else we have, however impressive it may be, is altogether worthless. The Bible is a Rorschach test, and the test is this. Can you read it with the lens of love, Christ-like love, Calvary love? Reading it, knowing what God really looks like, 
as he's revealed himself on Calvary. And watch how it changes everything when you frame everything in that lens. But see, if you've got legalism in your heart, you're going to find legalism in the Bible. You'll justify it. If you've got hatred in your heart, like the people on that website, you'll, you'll, you'll find justification for hatred in the Bible. Sure. If you've got nationalism, if that's your idol, if that's how you get life, well, then you're going to find justification for nationalism in the Bible. Uh, if you're violent, you're going to have uh, justification for your violence. If you're judgmental, you'll justify your judgmentalism. If you're fearful, you'll find justification for your fears. Why? Because we see what we want to see, what we expect to see, what we're conditioned to see. Holy Spirit, help us to put on the Jesus lens, if you will, and read it all, read the entire Bible through the lens of Calvary-like love. And not only read the Bible, but now to frame everything we know about God in the context of God's love, and frame our knowledge of ourselves in the context of God's love, and frame our awareness of other people in the context of God's love. If you've got judgmentalism on your brain, if you're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, well, then when you look at people, what you're going to notice are all the ways that you're superior to them, because that's what's going to be important to you. But see, from a kingdom perspective, one thing is important. One thing. And that is that we imitate Jesus Christ in his love for other people. And so we make that the center. Well, then that, everything else gets filtered out. You don't even notice the stuff you used to notice. Because what you notice is that these are people that were worth Jesus dying for. That is the kingdom. And I'll end with this since it's July 4th. That is freedom. That is freedom. To not... Amen. You know, it's like... Every, all these filters we have, it's kind of like with my droid. I find that I can download all these applications. If you know what those are, I didn't know what they were until a couple weeks ago. Now I know. But if you download the applications, they suck out all the energy of the phone. Man, you've you got to recharge it every two hours or something because the, the, the applications are doing all this work all the time. Well, when you walk around with all this filtering stuff and you're looking at the world through your fear, your judgment, your worries, your hostility, your religiosity, your nationalism, patriotism, whatever, that is, it just sucks life right out of you. Just, that's bondage. It sucks life right out of you. But when you can die to that, die to idolatry, die to all the false ways of getting life, and make this the center of your life, living in love like Christ loved you and gave his life for you, you are free. That love can set you free to no longer fear death. It sets you free to let go of, of the pursuit of life, liberty, and the, and, and, and the pursuit of happiness as though that was the end of all of things. You can still be thankful for it politically, but you're no longer chasing after it. Why? Because one thing is needful, and you've already got it in Jesus Christ. And that's being set free by the love of God, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen? That's real freedom because that's where the love is. And we're to look at life throughout every, every one of us aspects in that light. In that light. Be set free. By living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And pray, out of that love, you wake up. We wake up continually to the water we swim in, the air that we breathe because it's polluted. And then we can put on display this radically alternative kind of kingdom that looks like Jesus dying on Calvary, <laughs> praying for their forgiveness with his last breath, the very people who crucified him. That is the beauty of the kingdom. And that is freedom. I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up. And if you have any need whatsoever you'd like to have prayed for, you're working through maybe this issue or something else, come forward and pray with these folks. Or if you just want to kneel at the altar here, you're free to do that as well. But Father, I pray, God, as we go out now uh, to our homes or, or our neighborhoods or wherever we're going, God, that we would do it putting love at the center. Wake us up, Lord. Wake us up. Wake us up to the ways we've been blinded. Wake us up, Lord God, to live in love as you've loved us and gave, gave your life for us. God, help us to put on display 24-7 to all people at all times, no ifs, ands, or buts, the beautiful love of God exemplified for us on Calvary. Set us free and help, help us to be a people who set others free as we leave this place to live in true freedom, to live in the kingdom, to live in your love. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's kingdom people said, Amen.
God bless you guys. Go on, spread the freedom.